This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. You are listening to Front Office Features with Rob Crane. Each week on Front Office Features, we have a discussion with a sports executive in an effort to take you behind the curtain to learn more about the inner workings of the business and provide insights to help start and grow your sports business career. We recorded this interview back in July uh, and is one of the early, early ones uh, of Front Office Features. I want to thank uh, our guest, who is uh, John Sadak. Uh, is one of the top sports broadcasters for CBS Sports Network, Westwood One, and has called games for the New York Mets this past baseball season. John wanted to be an astrophysicist, actually, but ended up in the broadcast booth. Uh, He discusses how he created his network and how he continually leverages his connections within the sports industry. We talk about the power of yes and how those three little words can domino into something much greater they can never foresee. And how no leads to others getting your opportunity. Yes is an incredibly powerful word. The broadcasting world is extremely competitive, but John, with his natural ability, along with his incredible work ethic, has created a successful career that is on the rise. And trust me, you're going to hear a lot more from the name John Sadak coming up. He's on the big, big, big things. Well, I hope you enjoy this interview and encourage you to share it on your social media networks. And please follow ours. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Search Front Office Features. You'll be able to find it easily. So without further ado, here is John Sadak. We are here on Front Office Features. My guest today is John Sadak. John is a fantastic broadcaster. He's on Westwood One CBS Sports Network. And now uh, you are with the New York Mets. We get you on a day. uh, Where are you? Miami? Indeed. Oh, got to love the uh, Miami. Is Will Smith around? Uh, I haven't seen him yet, but I, I, I think tonight's the big club night, you know, with the day games. <laughs> Everyone will be uh, going out to, uh, uh, what is that, South? going to South Beach, and uh, what's that road right there? Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> ne- neither of us are South Beach connoisseurs. Uh, d- doesn't uh, fit our personalities. Uh, I think, John, you get sunburned just thinking about going outside. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a full suit of armor as soon as I get out the <laughs> hotel room door, even to get on the elevator. Oh, wonderful. Um, so, um, welcome to Front Office Features. Very much appreciate you taking the time uh, and and being on uh, some of the early podcasts here. So, thank you very much. You got it. Glad to be here. Cool. So, let's start way back when. And, John, when I think of John Sadak, I think jock 
four-star letterman, uh, the you know the uh, Greek god of sports. Would you agree with that the, the description? Totally. The power of audio only. <laughs> <laughs> I was a uh, a JV hockey player in high school and a rec league and pretty much everything else. My uh, my dreams of playing professionally in the NBA, NFL, NHL, and Major League Baseball all concurrently were dashed. When I hit about five and I realized it's it, it, not going to happen, but uh, incredibly smart. You wanted to be like an astrophysicist or something, right? I did. Yeah. The, uh, I love math and science. My only varsity letter was on math team when I was in high school and uh, I loved space. I loved physics. I loved high end math. Uh, but the more I looked into it, the more I realized I, I would have had to have gotten a doctorate. I'd have to be in college until I'm beyond my mid 20s. Uh, I'd likely come out with mountains of debt, even if I had, you know, offsetting scholarships or something. And the the combination of the salary commensurate with the debt I would have was not as as good as you would think. Uh, and I love the nerdy stuff. I love the idea of researching. You didn't really do that. The more I read about it, it was you were actually more of a sales guy. You were constantly looking for grant money. You were trying to fundraise. You had another job. And I, I was lost because I that was my passion for a number of years. And going into my senior year of high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So how did it go from not knowing being an astrophysicist to broadcasting? Uh, basically, it swung on an AP history class. I, I did a presentation on race relation in 20th century America and basically whether sport influenced society or was a reflection of society. Did Jackie Robinson break the color barrier because America was changing or did it change America? And uh, of course, there's no answer. The two are totally intertwined with each other. But in researching that, I went to the Sports Illustrated when Arthur Ashe was named Sportsman of the Year. And there's some great information in there, and it was a central crux in my presentation. That same issue just happened to have this big spread on ESPN Sports Center. And I loved Sports Center. I loved sports. Uh, but I never thought of it as a career path until they pulled the curtain back and told you about every job behind the scenes, including a day in the life of the production assistant. It was the smallest sidebar. It was like four paragraphs and it described it as being awful. It's power <laughs> weeks, you make no money, doing everything nobody else wants to do. And that's when it clicked for me because I said, I know I could do that. And I know if I tried long enough and hard enough, I could get that job. And then I'm in. And then I could grow beyond that. And my idea was, yeah, I want to be a sports center anchor. I want to be funny and hip and make jokes and watch sports. But I knew the odds of that were really tough. So I thought, well, if I could just get in, I'd gladly be an editor or a producer or a director. Or, and I'm learning about all these other roles that exist. Like, wow, that sounds fun. I'd like to do that. Interesting. So that's, you read that Sports Illustrated article and, goes, and go, eh, that crappiest job that I just read about, I could do the crappiest job in the world. <laughs> that, that made it real. That's what did. And, and um, in the wake of that, this was in the infancy of the Internet. I graduated high school in 96. Uh, so on the, the brief fledgling startings of, of online world, I was able to readily find the email addresses of multiple ESPN on air personalities. So I wrote them and said, this is what I'm thinking of doing. And the overwhelming majority wrote back and no described kidding. their own path, encouraged me, gave me bits of advice. And, and then it really tangibly kind of came together like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try this. Do you remember who from ESPN uh, responded to you? 
uh, Steve Levy, uh, Bob okay. Lee, Charlie Steiner. Wow, you got like the heavy hitters back then. Yeah, and the uh, and it was a mix. I mean, some were just you know a, a short couple of sentences of encouragement, and some were more detailed. And um, but uh, so many of them were were really kind and generous. So after that article, um, is that how you got to? Ch- is that how you chose Rowan, or how did that come about? Uh, so I, I went to a, a state school in southern New Jersey. The biggest reasons I went there, I, I had some high school friends the year before me that went and enjoyed the experience. Their college radio station, uh, my last year of high school, won an award as the top college radio station in America from the National Association of College Broadcasters. I took a tour, and I was told of where a lot of their alums were, and I was shocked to find out that many were at ESPN, NFL Films, Major League Baseball Productions. Um, and I also recognize that uh, the, the obvious choice is Syracuse. It's a, a giant sportscaster factory, and I did strongly consider it. But I was intimidated by the idea that there are 5,000 kids in the Newhouse School of Public Communication. Not all necessarily are sportscasters, but right. it's a large volume. And the more I inquired about Syracuse, I'd have to wait multiple years and hope that I'm good enough and in the right circles to be able to get on air, where if I went to Rowan, I was told, you'll be on the air your first year. Uh, and, and I got really lucky because the core of the department was seven or eight seniors that all graduated after my freshman year. So by my sophomore year, I was the sports director and I assigned the games. So I, I was the lead football announcer. I did every basketball game. I did every baseball game. I did every soccer game. I did every softball game. And those reps, just the chance to do it, like most enterprises, and I think sports broadcasting perhaps even more than some others, the only way you really learn is by doing it. Right. So um, the opportunities that you had at Rowan to be able to do football, to be able to do basketball, were such a big influence uh, in your early broadcasting career because you could actually do it. You weren't watching some other senior do it or some other, you know, someone in grad school do it. You were actually doing it as a 19-year-old kid. Yeah, and uh, and it also helped significantly. I got a full academic scholarship, and my family didn't have a ton of money, so I was told if you're going to college, you're going to have to take out loans and pay for it yourself. If I could go there and not have to pay, that, that helped a lot too. Yeah, as a guy that's been out of college 15 years and I still write checks to uh, <laughs> the Sally Mays or whatever the hell they're called right now, uh, I I, uh, I am jealous of uh, of that. So you get out of Rowan, right? You graduate Rowan, uh, and then you've got a small nighttime gig after that, right? Yeah, I was doing overnights at WYLM News Radio, uh, and I would fill in in the, the morning sports, and I decided to go and get my master's, uh, chiefly because... I could work uh, as a graduate assistant, go for free, actually make money to do 20 hours of work a week uh, while getting my master's. And I cheaply did that for several reasons. I love college. I didn't want to leave. (laughs) (laughs) Smart man. Smart man. (laughs) (laughs) And then I could still do college games. I I was given the blessing by the station manager. I wasn't going to be the sports director anymore. I wanted someone else to, to learn through doing that. But I could still do games. And uh, and I, the more research I did, by that point, I had switched to I didn't want to be a sports center anchor. I found studio kind of boring. I wanted to do game play by play and most full time play by play jobs that you could get out of college were in baseball or hockey. And with most of them, in addition to the announcing, really beyond the announcing, 
you were the PR guy and or you sold. The announcing is kind of the carrot that gets dangled for the opportunity to do the other stuff. So I got my master's in PR mostly because I knew hey, it's going to be hard as an early 20-something right out of college to get a full-time job, uh, but I'll have a better chance if I have this advanced degree and it might help me even more with that second or third job than it would the first. Right. So one of the things that you've said, you've been very practical, right? So you were, you go and think, all right, this will help me here because I'm going to go get my PR, my, my master's PR. Then you go back to like your high school days and you go, I was trying to do this, but I really actually like doing this. And then that will get me to Rowan where I actually can go do things and get uh, and reps and repetitions. Talk about where did that practicality come from? How did you, uh, is that a trait that you have innate? Is that something that you learn? Cause it really seems to say like, all right, there's this big dream ahead of time, but let me take the individual steps going forward to help me get to that dream. Um, was that something that you had to learn? Was that something that comes innate in you? Uh, where does that practicality come from? Um, I think both. You know, my, my dad can be that way uh, and was very blunt with me as a child. <laughs> so that's part of it was by uh, the nurse. Dads are good at that. About that. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, uh, but, you know, I, I was a math guy. And, uh, you know, so I, I look at a lot of things based on what my best guesstimates are. What's the best percentage chance, you know? And that's part of what I did when I looked at the, the many winding paths that all those sports center anchors had taken. And then I started looking at other guys' bios. I didn't have to, I wanted to reach out to them. I tried to, but if I didn't hear back, if I could just read the bio of where all these announcers came from, how'd they get there? What'd they do in between? And there's no one universal path that will work. And there's no path that will not work. But if you see one path that works way more often than others, well, you probably got a better shot of doing it that way. And and over time, you just amass more knowledge as you meet more people and engage them. And that's the key to all of this in, in every industry is try to meet as many people as possible. Don't be fake. Don't be phony. But, you know, engage people. And the more you learn, kind of compile all that knowledge together. A freaking men is the networking, is engaging people, is talking to people. Uh, when you are early coming through, whether it's at Rowan uh, or you uh, get your job with the Wilmington Blue Rocks, um, talk about, was there specific people uh, that helped you get uh, get your start, get along the way? Uh, what were some of the more important connections that you made and how did you make them? So it's it's been, I don't think, unique to me. I think the, the more I meet other people and hear their stories, this is fairly common. Almost every job that I've gotten has been a result of some form of connection that I've had. And when I say connection, it doesn't mean that it was like my uncle or something, <laughs> but it was someone that I, I came across that I, it wasn't even a friendship. It was just an awareness and a mutual respect and a line of communication that led to something down the road. So like the Blue Rocks job chiefly happened because when I went to grad school for public relations, I had to do a thesis, which, you know, I roll. I have no interest in that <laughs> level of writing a hundred page paper on something. But if I'm gonna do this, let's do it for something that can help me. So I chose to do it for ideal public relations practices for first year minor league teams at the A-ball level. So in academia, You've got to be hyper specific about things that like really have no true purpose in the world. You know, <laughs> it's an exercise in academic futility. However, I knew that a new A-ball team was coming 
very close to my hometown of the Jersey Shore, the Lakewood Blue Claws. So I thought, well, this would be a good idea because these are things that could be directly applicable to them. And I could speak to the people who are involved with them as part of the academic exercise and get to meet people. So my two main sources were a guy named Neil Solans, who is now the uh, pre-post host for the Tampa Bay Rays and does some villain uh, play-by-play. He was their initial radio announcer and PR man. And a guy named Steve Lennox uh, and his general manager, Chris Kempel, the announcer and GM with the Wilmington Blue Rocks. They were the two closest A-ball teams to where I lived that kind of fit this blueprint. The people that had started Wilmington were still there. The people that were starting Lakewood were there. And what do you know? After I do this thesis, and I I surveyed every team at the A-ball level, so I tried to connect with as many people as possible, but these two principal sources that were geographically closest to me, I wind up as the producer with the Lakewood Blue Claws working in their studio for a year. Um, I split her off and do a year down in Atlanta as a Division II SID full-time to try to do some on-air stuff there. And then I come back the same day I interviewed for the lead announcing job in Lakewood and the number two announcing job in Wilmington. Chiefly because I had tethered those connections through the thesis. That's amazing. And I also, so now let's fast forward a little bit and we can go back, but let's fast forward a little bit. So you are uh, applying to be uh, the uh, main radio guy in Scranton, Pennsylvania, the AAA affiliate of the New York Yankees. I, at the time, uh, the brand new president of the AAA affiliate of the New York Yankees. And I came from Omaha, Nebraska, the AAA affiliate of the Kansas City Royals. Wilmington is the single-A affiliate, was the single-A affiliate of the uh, Kansas City Royals. And I get hundreds, literally hundreds of freaking envelopes full of tapes and CDs and uh, thumb drives that say, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. They literally sat in a stack in the back of my office because I was inundated with radio uh, people applying for this job. And I didn't really know. I never hired for a radio person. The person that we had in uh, Omaha was there forever. Uh, I was too young uh, to interview for the person, hire the person in when I was in Battle Creek. So this is the first time I ever hired. So I was like, I made a mental note that says, all right, I can't listen to all these things. I don't have the time. Um, I want other people to reach out to me and say, this guy's great. Talk about how you separated yourself for the Scranton gig. Well, Scranton was a job that I had eyed for for a long time, chiefly because I I grew up a big Yankee fan. I had worked in the Yankee front office. And at the AAA level, it was as close to my home in New Jersey and my wife's home in Delaware as I could possibly be to to family and friends. Uh, So even before you had arrived, uh, when Jeremy Ruby was in charge, I would randomly email him and and honestly say, I'm not trying to steal anybody's job. Um, I'm just trying to reach out. I want you to know legitimately I, I'm not writing every team at your level or at other levels. I'm writing you because I would love to work there. So if something happened one day and I would get no response, no response, no response, no response. <laughs> and when you got that job, I wrote you that July because your AAA team was owned briefly by the same ownership that it owned. That's right. That's right. Radio man there had also been in Wilmington. And uh, so I just thought I'd reach out because we had a few connections. You never replied. That's okay. (laughs) Do you still hold it against me? (laughs) But then a few months later, I got a call from several of the other announcers and front office folks in the league had been in my A-ball league. And they told me that uh, they were told by the existing announcer that he was leaving. 
and that job was going to be open. I thought, oh. So I played dumb, and I wrote you again, and uh, I just said, hey, just checking in, uh, coming back around on this email. And uh, the, the really the main pivot point was when you had reached out to the New York Yankees, where I had worked for a year, yeah. uh, and wrote Lon Trost, the chief operating officer of the team, I need, need to hire an announcer. Who should it be? Well, I don't think Lon really cared who the announcer was <laughs> in, uh, in Scranton. So he wrote Mike Bonner, who was the New York Yankees director of yep. broadcasting, a University of Scranton alumnus who had great affection and affinity for the AAA affiliate. And I had worked for Mike, and Mike and I were friendly. And I had just written Mike, I think, the day or two before that to say, hey, I hear this job might be open. I wrote them. I haven't heard back. I know you're busy. I, I know you probably don't care, but if you can help in any way. And I'm in the airport, and he texts me and says, hey, I just got an email from the GM there. I told him that you're the guy. And uh, I think it was a couple of hours later, I got a phone call from you. And, uh, and, and But that's how so much of this works. And you can't forecast or know that. You right. can't say, like, I'm going to, uh, you know, try to make inroads with this particular person because it will directly lead to this. The truth is you have to cast as wide a net as possible and do it with sincerity. You know, reach out initially to the people that you would have the most connection with, that you would be able to broker some form of conversation with, and nurture it as best you can, as often as you can, and find that line of, you don't want to be a bother, you don't want to contact someone incessantly and all the time, but you also don't want to be forgotten and fade into oblivion. And uh, that's my only professional regret, I've made other mistakes, uh, but I think I needed to make those mistakes. I don't think I could have forecasted those mistakes ahead of time, and I've learned from them. And I'll still make others later in life. But the only one I should have known better uh, is I should have been more aggressive earlier. I think there was always a, an innate insecurity and sense of doubt in myself that I was never the fully polished product. I hear my own mistakes, see my own mistakes, and and think, all right, I just need to get a little bit better, and then I'll be really aggressive. And my nature is also I don't want to bother people. I don't want to come off like a used car salesman. And so that that shelled me for a long time that I probably could have done something else earlier if I pushed harder earlier. That's unbelievable advice. That's uh, uh, that's great. The one thing I always liked about you, too, is you were very humble in your reaching out but also very confident in the same way. You kind of described it, hey, I don't want to uh, – I'm just – I want to stay in touch. Uh, you know, here's my here's my uh, here's my link to your however that you linked it to. I'm no uh, genius at that, but uh, and then it was like, all right, I gotta listen to this. I gotta listen to this guy. And the other thing that I remember vividly is I was trying to be cheap, and uh, I was like, you know what? We're gonna hire this person, and I need a PR guy too. So we're gonna combine the PR and the uh, broadcasting. Obviously, you're an excellent broadcaster and broadcasting was your first passion. But the ability to say yes, and you had the master's degree in the PR side of it, was this combination that personally, I, you know, and we brought in a whole bunch of people to talk to you. Um, we couldn't, we couldn't, uh, we couldn't pass by. So uh, talk a little bit about, uh, I've heard you say in other interviews and other times that we've just talked is saying yes, the power of the power of yes, yes to games, yes to travel, yes to 
you know, making the media guide. Yes, to things that you don't necessarily want to do, have the best experience in, but just saying yes and how yes has gotten you to where you kind of are. Yeah, I, I think that's significant. I, I think you have to embrace every opportunity, particularly when you're younger. Right? That, that's when you're the most malleable, the most flexible. You don't have the same level of commitment to everything. So if, if this is your passion, it has to be a passion. If you want to work in sports in any way, you better have a passion for it because you know, here's part of the truth. You're not going to make a ton of money right away. You very possibly will not make a ton of money ever. You have to love what you're doing. It's not to say you're going to be poor, but in the very beginning, you were <laughs> poor. Uh, and you, you never know what opportunities can lead to. And that's the, the chief reasons to say yes. Saying yes to one thing can domino 15 steps down the road that you cannot foresee. And similarly, saying no opens up the door to other people. When you say no to something and turn something down, you're not going to be the first phone call. Uh, I had a few serious girlfriends before I met my wife. Uh, and things largely didn't work out because I was more into the job than I was the relationship. They would say that they would understand what the circumstances were. And then the reality would kick in. Oh, you're missing Thanksgiving? Oh, you're not going to be at the birthday party? Yeah, I got a game. Yeah, but this is like some low level whatever. You're not even making any money. Why don't you just miss this game? I miss this game. The next time a game comes, they don't call me. The next time after that, they don't call me. And if they call the same person two, three times, that person's now getting the call before I am. It's just the nature of the business. Right. The, the saying yes. And but also that brings up a whole thing. And the part of the business, too, is the incredible difficulty of balancing uh, family and balancing friends and balancing uh, your life along with a professional life. And the life of a broadcaster uh, is, I'd say, next, you know, with the players is like, unbelievably difficult because you got to you're on the road you are gone so often uh that that's hard how have you adjusted your uh personal life professional life while still being able to you know call you know national championship games i, I think uh facetime and skype have helped tremendously uh, honestly if this were 30 40 years ago and circumstances were similar uh, I'm married. I have a little girl that I adore. Uh, Claire, Bear. I don't know that I would work to the same extent that I do. I don't know if I could. I, I really don't know. Yeah, the, I had a professor in college who was the beat writer, covered uh, the Yankees, the Giants, the Knicks, the Rangers, and he gave up the job when he was in his early mid 30s uh, because he had kids. And he said, I, I can't be away that much. I, I need to, I'm going to miss my kids growing up. Um, and that's, that's hard. Uh, the, the the good thing is I've advanced enough where I'm, I, I you'll never have the full lifetime security in any industry, I don't think, in today's world uh, where you can feel permanently locked in. Uh, but I have enough established work and connections that um, I can be more selective, more with the yeah. enterprising of what other opportunities I'll, I'll listen to or, or talk to about. Uh, but it's it's trying to embrace as much of the personal time as you can when you can uh, yeah. when i'm in my off seasons or if i'm home i'm home you know to be honest i don't really watch that much sports when i'm not involved in broadcasting it i'm involved in covering it 
because my six-year-old girl is not interested. She wants me to be on the floor playing with her stuffed animals. She wants me to be playing an improvised volleyball game with an oversized inflatable in the back. <laughs> and she wants me to read her stories. That That's what I'm doing. And that's way more important than uh, as, a, as a father of a three-year-old. Uh, that's way more important than any, uh, you know, Mets-Braves game in uh, – in July, but uh, calling those games are, are are important. So I think you've done a great job of being able to um, to balance that. So now, so we were in in Scranton. You left Scranton, but one of the things that you've been able to do, and I'm interested in uh, hearing kind of the behind the scenes, is you had you started you've been able to get your foot in the door with Westwood, and Westwood had NFL, but you still call. Um, and NCAA games, you call major college football games, you call the women's uh, Final Four. Talk a little bit about how you got into that. Uh, that's always, even when we were in Scranton together, that was something that you would do in the in the off season. Talk a little bit about how that came about, uh, and whether it was through networking, whether it was through people hearing you. How did that all work its uh, work its way out? Uh, well, it, it was a very long process. Uh, that was my first major national opportunity, and it chiefly came about because the, the main man in charge, Howie Deneroff, uh, I found his contact information online. I wrote him uh, without response for about 18 months. So I'm not the only one who doesn't respond to you. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the world does not respond to you. And, that's, and that's where you really can't take that kind of stuff personally. They're not saying like you are nothing. It's they are overwhelmed with so much communication and so much work that they have to do that you you never know. You can send it on the wrong day or at the wrong time. Uh, and it just happens to be that way. Yeah. Uh, but I finally broke through uh, when I, I sent him a tape. Uh, I spent about eight months following up. I, I finally got him to respond and he liked it. Uh, but the basketball tape that I sent did not have a partner. And he insisted on having a partner because if you work games for him, particularly in the tournament, you'll not only have a partner, you'll have John Thompson as your partner. And he needs space and you know, he's a, a big name. And so how are you integrating that in a high speed up tempo sport that also has a lot of reads? And uh, So I made sure to get another tape that had me with a partner. And it, it took several years uh, to finally have an extended phone call where I got very positive feedback on the tape uh, and I was – told that there were possibly going to be openings that I would be in line for, but wait and see. We're kind of holding to see when holes come up in the schedule. I think, though, the main connection point that happened, when we had that conversation, we recognized you know, he, he had grown up in New York, lived in New Jersey. I was born in New York, raised in New Jersey. We did overlap with certain people that we knew. Um, and it turns out that a bar that my great uncle owned, who I never met, it passed before I could even have memories, is a place that he had gone to at some point in his past. And, and all these dominoes kind of started to fall. There was a greater human connection there beyond just the, the tape. Um, and I think that helped. Uh, but I, I think it was chiefly, try, I found that line of contacting him enough to remind him who I was and what I wanted to do without bothering him. And then I got lucky because I was told for a year and a half well, this could open, this could open, nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened. And then all of a sudden, I get my first basketball game. The next fall, I get my first football game, and I did well, and things just kind of continued to blossom beyond that. 
I uh, I like see the humble part of this. I got lucky. You didn't get lucky. You made your own luck. You were able to uh, stay in connection, start talking, and you really made a greater what you called a greater human connection. What I think people need to be able to do is, yes, social media is good. Yes, that's a way to start that connection, but you really need to make a human connection. Talk to them. The great Uncle Barr was probably one of the greatest connections, but it had nothing to do with your LinkedIn profile. That's just two people talking and have a conversation. Um, Do you feel uh, that that human connection, that the really hand-to-hand combat uh, still has a place today in such a social media driven uh, digital electronic world significantly and and that's where that's one of the corrections I would have made to my earlier efforts. Uh, I think I would have found excuses to do random drop-ins or to set up short in-person meets with more people. Um, I think it would have been in my best interest, and I advise some young people today like if you have the contact info of a coordinator producer somewhere and you've been reaching out you have a some dialogue but you're not really breaking through in a significant way part of the way to separate yourself a great way to separate yourself is to have that that in-person experience and to say hey i know you live in charlotte or i know you live in sacramento uh i'm gonna be there visiting family in uh october are you around and see if you can pop in and just grab a coffee. And I, I, I think just showing face to that extent and humanizing yourself, you know, making yourself a person, because that's what people are really deciding when they're hiring. It's, this, it's very similar to the sales world. You know, they're not buying the product, they're buying, buying the person. When they're Amen. hiring someone, they're hiring the person. Yes, there's a skill set that's commensurate, there's a resume, and all those things do need to align as well. But the ultimate decision often is made by a person and they're choosing another person. That's right. That's uh, you're, you're so right on that is that uh, I when we were hiring our person in uh, in Scranton, the connection that you and I had and then that you were able to have with the other colleagues, our other colleagues uh, when during the hiring process was really one of the main reasons that, you know, we we chose you and it was down to two people, you and a guy named John Laser, and John Laser is now the voice of Virginia Tech. So I know I had two good people at the uh, at the end looking back at it, uh, but it was just a bit uh, the connection um, and obviously skill set and being able to call the games uh, that all just wor- that just worked out. Would you say that was similar now that uh, you've been able to uh, have a fill in, for lack of a better term, role with the New York Mets? Very much so. I I think this has mostly come about in a somewhat similar set of circumstances. Um, There's a guy named Mark Chernoff who runs WFAN in New York City. And I had written Mark and uh, and several of his lieutenants for years just to get feedback on my stuff. I I knew that I was going to make the jump 10 years ago from Wilmington to there. But these are decision makers of the properties that I adored as a child, like I, I want to know where I stand. Where can I get improve? What do you like? What do you not like? And I, I'll try to tailor myself to that, particularly the demo materials that I'm sending, because I know the job I could actually attain is more mid-level. But if the materials I'm sending have some form of endorsement from you, that legitimizes to me I'm on the right path. Because in in broadcasting, and I'm sure it's similar across all spectrum of sport, there's always this conundrum when you come out of college. What's the best way to format your resume? What's the best way to organize all your materials? Um, and to be honest, when I wrote him for the first few years, there was no response. <laughs> and uh, 
over the course of time, you know, we did forge a little bit of a, a relationship that I, I think one of the big cruxes was being in Scranton with the Yankees AAA affiliate. We had Derek Jeter on rehab. We had Alex Rodriguez on rehab. They couldn't always send somebody out. I would get sound. I would send it. I, I would arrange for people to call in or do other things. Um, and I was able to build some form of connection. Uh, to me, what I feel like was probably the breakthrough was uh, w- without any, you know, um, nefarious or, or, or otherwise goals, I, I had read a story about Mark and his son, who now runs the Cleveland Indians, who's the general manager there, and how they have a game of catch once a month. And they've done this forever. And even though they, they live hours apart, uh, they find a way. They did it once in the parking lot at the airport on a snowy day. And it was a really cool story. And it hit me because I was very emotional at that point. With my daughter, I was away a lot. I missed a huge portion of her childhood uh, because I, I was constantly working. And that kind of resonated with me. I, I'd like to find something like that with my daughter because I love this industry and it's it's given me a, a abundant chances. I love the work that I do. I've been fairly successful at it. I don't plan on leaving it. Uh, so I recognize that means there are going to be other moments, especially as she gets older, that we're going to be away more. And at some point she may move away and there may be giant gaps of time between when we see each other in person. So I'd like to find a grounding activity of some kind that makes sure that connection is always there. So I wrote him a short note just to say like, wow, that's like an amazingly uh, significant, uh, really heartwarming idea of, of, father and son together. And it inspired me to try to come up with something like that for my daughter. And, uh, and I think after that, the nature of our communication changed a little bit. Um, and I didn't do it with that in mind. I did it because it really meant that. To yeah. Me. You're genuine. You're genuine. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I think that is one of the central keys because we come across people in all businesses that if, if it doesn't come from the right place, people see through that there's a, um, a shallowness and a hollow nature to uh, fabricating it. And I, I think that injures you. Um, there have been other moments, many other moments, where I've seen opportunities to do similar things, uh, but it would have been forced. And I, I have always chosen not to because I, I see what the repercussions could be through others in, the, in my world um, that I think force things too much. It can lead to a small amount of success, but in the long run, that will be exposed. And I, and I think that's where you have to come from a very centered personal nature when you do it. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's really good. Gen- like just genuine people, when people reach out is it's a genuine nature in which you go about it. It doesn't feel like, Hey, saw the thing. Hey, do you have a job for me? No, buddy. It just like, no, that's not how you do this. It's uh, we're really looking for, like I use that word genuine a lot, uh, reaching out and just say that was that was that, and in your version, it's such a great, uh, you know, uh, a great way to do that. Um, go ahead. That is something that I, I do see increasingly in just the last like five plus years when I get you know, cold emails or calls uh, from aspiring announcers. They're they're advanced in the sense that they recognize I'm going to contact a bunch of people. I'm going to cast a broad net. I'm going to try to reach out. Uh, but there is a, a more significant lack of depth. Uh, if you respond in any form of positive manner, it 
essentially immediately leads to, all right, well, can you get me a job? Or Yeah, you right, no. Or, hey, you don't think in the last 30 years that I've met a few other people that I would probably help before the person that just... <laughs> <laughs> That's possible. I could. And there are times when it does fit because it's the right level of job that I've heard is open or uh, but th there is uh, relationship building that is that has to be involved in it and it has to come from the right place. And what I see more and more is these form letters that uh, they'll they'll have the wrong name of the person. That ah, drives me crazy. And uh, I would highly encourage when you reach out to people. My, my own personal thing. And this is when I'm doing it coming from the right place. But sometimes, especially as, as the years go by, you confuse things, you miss something. When you draft that email, write that handwritten note, get ready to send that text, that LinkedIn message, whatever it is, and you're about to hit send, stop, close it, go do something else, remove yourself from it for at least a few hours, if not a day, then come back and look at it again and make sure that it's saying what you want it to say and that it's representative of yourself. Amen. He's like, I uh, used to get these things. I uh, still do occasionally. He's like, um, uh, good evening. Good afternoon, Steve. Um, I'm an aspiring sports executive. I'm like, who the hell is Steve? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that my, my question, my next question was going to be, um, you know, you've been mentored a lot of young broadcasters. We've talked a lot about uh, networking. We've talked a lot uh, about reaching out. Hell, we just talked a lot about, uh, you know, making sure you don't call them Steve when their name is John or Rob. Um, is there any other major themes that you talk to about aspiring young uh, broadcasters? Uh, I'm going to lead you down a path. Um, one of the things you were uh, and still are an incredible baseball announcer. I just when I when I remember listening to your tape, it was like I was there. You were in my living room and we were just having a conversation about the games. But also one of the things that I think separates you, too, is like you do football, you do basketball, you do hockey, you do uh, all lacrosse. I remember you doing uh, for young broadcasters. Do you say, like, I want to be the next Vin Scully? Are you saying, all right, just do baseball, or are you saying cast a wider net with different sports, different uh, partners, solo? What's your advice to them? Yeah, I, I think you need to do everything, any, anything you can, uh, because you're beholden to what the opportunities are, where you're living, or where you're willing to move to. Uh, but you should be willing to go anywhere and do anything. I did water polo. I did volleyball on the radio, which is really impossible to, <laughs> to be able to do. Uh, but I, and I still will, I, I'll still get calls randomly sometimes to do events or sports that I don't even know anything about. And I will make sure that I research the heck out of it and lean on the analyst and, and make sure I'm as prepared as possibly I can be. Um, I, I think that's how you can open other doors too. So my first reps with ESPN, I did a spring football game at Virginia uh, that went well. Uh, I was very nervous. Yeah, it's a spring game. It's not a real game. It's situational stuff. But they liked it. So the next fall, they gave me a couple of football games, and that was it. And their schedule was fairly filled. And I, I recognized then I'm going to have a hard time really breaking through. Like I need more reps at football on TV, which I had only done a handful of games to that point. To, to improve myself. Um, and then I randomly got a phone call asking me, have you ever done soccer? And I said, yes, which is kind of true. I had not <laughs> done television. I had done it on Division Three college radio nine years earlier for about 20 games. Uh, 
And so they gave me some ACC soccer and it went really well. What I did not know at the time is that my main boss who hired and filled all the spots for all the sports that they did at that level on the, the ESPN three watch ESPN uh, was a huge soccer guy. He coached his daughter's youth team. He loved international soccer. He loved the MLS. And he did a handful of these games directly that I was involved in, which he rarely uh, enterprised to, but he had such a passion for soccer, he was involved in it. So when I did those games and did them, I guess, reasonably well, it satiated a hole for him because he didn't have many announcers. They only wanted to do football, basketball, baseball. Um, and he saw in me the, the passion and the willingness to engage the sport that he also loved. I, I don't know this. I've never had the conversation with him, but I'm sure that is a giant part of why the next year I had a football game pretty much every week because I was able to fill in this soccer hole and it was this shared passion that he had as well. Uh, and it, it helped tremendously. Just say yes. Just say yes. And one of the things too is you don't know, but you're always being evaluated. There's always someone you, you don't think is like, what What do they care about this soccer game? And you can kind of half-ass it for lack of a better term. But you don't know if that's their passion, right? So you are always being evaluated no matter what you're doing. Yeah, I, I think there's exposure that can come from anything. Uh, you never know who you'll meet. Uh, how uh, a lot of the dominoes fell for a number of the jobs in my career uh, when I got out of college, I worked as a producer with the Lakewood Blue Claws, but I also was a freelance logger at Yankee Stadium for Major League Baseball Productions. I got that job because the uh, sports director, who was a senior when I was a freshman in college, had gone off to work for them as an editor. While he was an editor at Major League Baseball Productions, they were producing something called The Season that aired on ESPN. And the first ever one was on Cal Ripken, his last year in baseball. So... As this documentary was being created, uh, the primary producer wound up falling ill. This was during spring training. They needed someone to fill in. So they called my buddy, who's an editor. He's not a producer at that point. And he was down, oddly enough, I think he was in Port St. Lucie with the Mets, said, hey, can you go over to Orioles camp and fill in for a week shooting this stuff for this documentary? Sure thing. He goes and does it. The other guy is healthy. He comes back. My friend goes back to doing what he's doing. Another week or so later, apparently there are issues with the, the producer and some of Cal's people and access that is being given and times that they're shooting and talking to people that wasn't agreed upon. And it ultimately turns into, well, Cal's going to he's going to walk. He doesn't want to do this anymore. If you're not going to honor these guidelines about talking to his family and all this other stuff, I don't know the details fully of it. But in trying to save the project, they ask, well, what can we do? But bring back the guy that was here for that week when he was away because he listened to everything we said. He was great. Huh. So they bring him back and he winds up producing the whole thing. He wins an Emmy. He gets promoted and then he has a little more cachet and has more knowledge of when other things are happening. So he hears about this logging position that's open at Major League Baseball Productions in the Chelsea section in New York. He calls me. I'm out of college. Hey, would you have interest in working here? It's like an entry level job. It's hourly. It doesn't really pay that much. You'd have to travel to the city, but you know, you're here and it's good resume material. I said, heck yeah. I went up and interviewed. They loved me apparently. Did not get the job. I think it was the nephew of the head of finance also interviewed. And ah, that'll do it. Hired him. But then six weeks later, I made a good impression. I followed up. I sent thank you notes and everything. If something else opens up, 
they had someone bail on logging the games at Yankee Stadium for that season. Right. It might have even been after the year began. It was very close to the start of the season. So I said yes. And now I'm losing money. I was paid, I think it was 75 bucks a game before taxes. Uh, for the first half of the year, I had to pay for my own parking before they got me a pass. Uh, between the tolls, the gas, my food, or if I would take the train and the hours I would lose with that as well, uh, maybe I made 10 bucks a, a day. Uh, but I met people, and I had a ton of fun, and I met a guy named Mike Bonner. And it was that connection that led to me being in their front office a couple of years later when uh, he, we stayed in touch uh, after I'd worked that season. Uh, I did one year as number two announcer in Wilmington, and just as the baseball opportunity was going away in Wilmington at the end of that year, Mike calls me up. Hey, I'm thinking about creating a job for you because I really liked you and I think you have potential. Would you have interest in coming here and working and doing some production, but also doing some other stuff? Yes. So I go up to interview. The day before I interview, his assistant director is no longer working there. And now that job is open. Literally between the time I schedule the interview and when I arrive, this happened. Uh, we're not going to create that job anymore, but I want to offer you the higher tier assistant director position. Would you be willing to do that? And, and oh, I have well. no control over this. I have no way of knowing these things. No, of course not. But it all came about because I took the opportunities I was given. I tried my very best at it, and I made sure to stay in touch with those people. That was That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, you've just done a, such a great job of networking, continuing to network. Uh, always making sure that you're uh, talking to people. So um, one of the, I like to end these interviews with talking about your front office favorites. Who has been a, uh, a favorite of yours? Who has helped you with your career uh, to push you in different directions has really kind of helped your, uh, helped your career. And then also, you know, kind of helped you get to the, to the next stops. And how did you foster those types of relationships? Oh, I mean, there's millions. There are probably, yeah, 50, 60 people that I would consider central core to that. Uh, I think my my college station manager, Frank Hogan, uh, ran our college environment like it was a professional environment in many ways. There was a lot of accountability and responsibility. It was truly student run. It was fully formatted. Uh, he was it starts that early. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It's it's in college. Right. It's not just someone out, out, out there. He was harsh on us critically uh, with how we sounded on air, how we conducted ourselves, everything. Um, and it, it was a little intimidating when I was when I was young. Uh, but now he's one of my closest friends and he was a giant advocate for me and it's helped me tremendously. And I, I think he's the backbone of, of everything that I've done professionally in terms of broadcasting. Um, but I, I, I think uh, Howie Deneroff at Westwood One gave me my first major national opportunity, uh, has an ear for broadcast unlike any other executive that I've come across. Um, he can be blunt and harsh, uh, but I appreciate that. I want that. Uh, too often you wind up hearing the generalities of, oh, everything's great. Everything's great. And then they close the door. You know, I really didn't like this, 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 and this. Tell me. <laughs> no, yeah, right. That's the only way you get better. And uh, he's also a tremendous advocate for me. Uh, Mike Bonner uh, was a, a huge help at multiple stops, connecting me with people, endorsing me, giving me good feedback. Um, and there's a similar trend, I would say. Most of them that immediately leap out that at the most significant pivot points um, were probably my harshest critics. 
They were yeah. probably the ones that were most honest with me. Um, and and that's something I think you always need. Um, and I, I would say you as well. I mean, that the opportunity to be in Scranton, um, it it helped propel a lot of elements of my career all at once. Uh, yeah, it, it was a chance to realize the, the minor league dream that I had. Um, and it, uh, I think it helps legitimize and endorsing the, the resume dramatically. Um, I, I think that that's something that happens in broadcasting significantly. And I, I would imagine also happens a lot with sports executives as well. Is someone who is the uh, director of championships for a low-level Division II league capable of becoming the commissioner of the Big Ten? Yeah, probably. I mean, the right person, if they have the right temperament and mindset and Yes, the skills could certainly be there. Are they going to get that job from being the director of championships at a low-level Division II? Probably not. Why? The number one reason why, most of the time, you can't write that press release. Right. Big Ten announced their new commissioner is the former director of championships Oops. from a low-level Division II. <laughs> people scratch their heads. Like, How many other great candidates were there? Well, to be honest, this person might have been the best candidate. They would never even advance to that point because their resume doesn't match the job. They, they, you need to have the skill set, yes, um, but the resume matters in many ways more for getting the job. You keep the job with your skill set. If you're right. good at it, that's how you stay there. That's how you advance while you're there. But you get in based on your other accomplishments to that point. Um, and the opportunity that you gave me and, and the challenges that were there, too, it was there was some balance that was involved with you know doing the PR and doing the broadcast work with um, managing a young kid who's gone on to have great success independently, but you know was was thrust into the fire and having to be in a brand new stadium. And I grew and learned a lot from that. Uh, and I I. I I can directly look back almost every opportunity that I've had, and I'm sure every one that I will have, you know, hereafter, I can look back to multiple points earlier in my career where this was a direct impact and influence on that. Uh, it didn't necessarily directly lead to it, but it prepared me for it, or it opened a door to another door that led to that. They're all interconnected, and I think that's true for all of us. Well, um, I appreciate the kind words and uh, working together for the three years that we did was a uh, was a was a lot of fun. Uh, and John, I just want to say congratulations on all the success that you've had in your career thus far. I look forward to interviewing you again down the road when uh, your career just keeps on going and and everything. So uh, I'm appreciative of the time that you took today. I'm thankful of the time. And uh, quick recap, if I would have to say anything that we talked about was say yes. Uh, you, you know, we talked about always being evaluated and reach out to people, talk to people, have that human connection because every step along your career was because of a human connection, the way that you reached out. And if some jerk in Scranton doesn't respond to your emails, that's not the end of the world. <laughs> yeah, I, and I would also say thank you for doing something like this. Yeah, that's one of the great elements of our world is the ability to, to share knowledge, communicate with each other. And uh, if you're listening to this and you want to work in this industry and you you have that passion and drive, you know, follow through on it. You know, pursue those dreams and, and do it with as, as much intensity and vigor as possible. Well, John, thank you so very much. We will talk soon. Enjoy the uh, Marlins-Mets game, and uh, I'll talk to you later, buddy. You got it, my friend.